0: why is Pride and Prejudice the novel that we still press into each other's hands? We were asking that question in terms of the qualities of the novel, but there are other components to this unanswerable question as well. We've talked about some of them. The politics of canon. Luck. Austen's lack of clear biography, but just enough biography. Part of the reason, no doubt, is that Pride and Prejudice's longevity is a self-perpetuating cycle. The more something is loved, the more attention it gets. The more attention it gets, the more we all want to read it. One of the mechanisms of that self-perpetuating cycle around Pride and Prejudice is all of its adaptations. And the list of them is nearly bottomless. In just 1995 and 1996, Six English language screen adaptations of Jane Austen's novels were produced. Then there are all of the novel adaptations. There are novels that expand the Darcy Lizzie relationship to the erotic. There are novels about minor characters. There is at least one murder mystery. There are retellings in different times, settings, and points of view. In order to understand Pride and Prejudice in the year 2023, we have to talk about at least some of the adaptations. Many of us only read the books after we saw a movie, a TV show, or read a fanfic. The adaptations have become inextricably linked to the text. We have to actively fight against picturing Kira Knightley and Colin Firth as we read. Scenes that make it to every adaptation are revealed as vital to the book. Changes to the original material say something about the adapters. So we will spend the next several episodes talking about this important component of our love of Austin and Pride and Prejudice in particular. The first adaptation we'll be discussing is Longborn by Joe Baker. What follows is some spoilers, but we will not be revealing the brilliant twists and turns of the novel. Longbourn is one of my favorite adaptations, and I'm not alone. Roxanne Eberly, who is one of the expert voices you've heard over and over again this season, has this to say. She has taught me to read the novel in a completely different way, and I think a really amazing way. I will say I get the best papers on Longbourn. I teach it every time I teach Jane Austen now. It's just like I, I feel the same way when I open Longbourn that I do when I open Pride and Prejudice. You know, that feeling you get when you're reading a book you love. In a sentence, Longbourn is a retelling of Pride and Prejudice from the point of view of the downstairs, the servants. Mrs. Hill, the housekeeper, mentioned three times in Pride and Prejudice, and Sarah, a servant, mentioned once in the original text, become our main characters. Lizzie's adorable lack of care for how dirty her hems get is shown to be someone else's difficult laundry day. We see the menstrual stains and the ridiculous demands of the Bennett sisters from the eyes of the people who have to deal with the consequences, the literal invisible labor. We follow the lives of the servants of Longbourn, and the Bennetts become a job, not a joy. Baker invents some downstairs characters. Polly, an orphan girl of an unknown age around preteenhood, works hard helping around the house and garden. We also have Mr. Hill, a gay man who marries Mrs. Hill, as a gesture of mutual respectability and companionship. Just as Pride and Prejudice starts with a mysterious man coming to town, so does Longbourn. In this case, it's James, a skinny, hard worker who sleeps in the stable and sometimes acts as the Bennett's footman. James's time at Longbourn is what gives the novel its shape. He arrives at the beginning, leaves in the middle, and returns at the end. I love this novel. Details that are just half a sentence in Pride and Prejudice get long descriptions in Longbourn. The flogging of a soldier, the Napoleonic War. Baker makes the choice that the Benguis money comes directly as a result from slavery, and one of the enslaved people who made the Benglis rich has a large part to play in Longbourn. We see smaller things, too. The fear that Lizzie's rejection of Collins strikes not only in the eyes of Mrs. Bennett, but in the hearts of the servants. And Logbourne takes a stand on some of the events in Pride and Prejudice. In Baker's version, Wickham is a predator who is going after 12 to 13-year-old Polly. And Mr. Bennett was messing with Mrs. Hill intentionally by not telling her that Collins was coming right when she would want to impress a potential future boss. It's a brilliant book, and who better to talk about it with than the novel's author, Joe Baker. Joe Baker is the author of eight novels, including Longbourn, and her latest, The Midnight News. She has also written for BBC Radio 4 and short stories in anthologies. I'm Vanessa Zoltan, and this is Live from Pemberley, from Hot and Bothered. Hi, Joe. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Vanessa. Thanks for having me on. I've got to say we've had the honor of talking to a lot of the like best and brightest academics on Austin in the U.S. And everybody is like, have you read Longborn?" So I would just love to hear a little bit about why you wanted to write this book about sort of the downstairs of Pride and Prejudice. So
1: massive fangirl for Austin, obviously. Um, huge, obviously. Huge, huge fangirl. I first started reading her when I was 12. And I can date it quite precisely because I was introduced to Austin by my friend, Emma, who I met when I was 12. And she introduced herself as being called Emma, named after Emma from Emma. And I just was completely blank at this. I had no idea what she was talking about, but she introduced me to the books and I have been reading them and rereading them since. Comfort reading all the time, you know, worn out so many copies of Pride and Prejudice. But alongside that, I've always known that my own family were in service in domestic mm-hmm. service. So this is quite common, you know, trace back a couple of generations. It was a very common occupation for for people who weren't weren't moneyed and we weren't. And so you see the love the wonderful thing about pride and prejudice or one of the wonderful things about pride and prejudice is the kind of putting yourself in Elizabeth Bennet's shoes and imagining yourself as that great beauty and that sparkling wit. But for me I couldn't It's kind of the book came out of a failure of imagination, really, because I couldn't (laughs) imagine myself in her shoes. But because Mm -hmm. of my family background, I could imagine myself cleaning her shoes. And it was Mm -hmm. out of that sense of loving this world, but feeling that I didn't quite belong in this world and wanting to find a way to be in that world that someone like me could occupy, someone from my background could occupy, that sort of set me off on writing this novel in the first place.
0: When I would read books like Pride and Prejudice as a younger person. I would ask my dad who we would be in whatever setting and he would always make the same joke. He's like, oh, hon, we would be in debtor's prison. (laughs) And that was how my father imagined us in Pride and Prejudice. So I love that you had this, you know, clear version of yourself at like the Regency ball, but like waiting back at home. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so Sarah is your Lizzie in the novel. And I'm wondering if you can just tell us a little bit about Sarah in conversation with Lizzie. She is also beautiful and charming and amazing. Is it on purpose that she's sort of similar to Lizzie in that way, but just downstairs?
1: A protagonist needs to have a certain dynamism about them. Like, you can't have someone passive as a central character. So when you're writing those central characters, you do need to find ways to make sure that they have the kind of energy that can make a story happen. If Sarah wasn't interested in the world beyond her limited sphere, the, the bubble that she lives in, then the story wouldn't happen. So she has to be looking out. She has to be hungry. She has to be looking out at the world and thinking there has to be more than this. I mean, she is in that way in a sort of parallel to Elizabeth. In that, you know, that sort of sense of for, for Lizzie, the what's on offer mm-hmm. is limited, and she's refusing to take anything other than the deepest love, the most overwhelming romance is is what she, is what she's she's after. But what Sarah wants really isn't that. When she falls for Toll initially, what he represents is the wide world. What he represents mm-hmm. is something you know else out there that she can get her teeth into. she quite literally like to get teeth into. But um, she has weirdly, she actually has slightly more in the way of options open to her because Elizabeth, it's marriage or nothing. And although working as, as a servant isn't fun, the thing about Sarah and people like her is they can always take their labour elsewhere. And that's just not, in a way, weirdly, Elizabeth is more contained, more curtailed in some ways than the servants are by demands of respectability, the demands of being a gentlewoman as opposed to being a a working woman.
0: How much knowledge of Pride and Prejudice do you assume that your readers have? Did you intentionally write Longbourn in a way that someone who's never read Pride and Prejudice could totally follow it? Or what relationship do you hope it has?
1: To be honest with you, when I was writing it, I wasn't really thinking of very far ahead, and I was only really thinking about myself and my own enjoyment of this experience. It was it was a kind of jeu d'esprit. It was a game I was playing, a very sort of like quiet, intense game of, of I don't know. It's not quite laughing, but I was just kind of just enjoying being in that world and spending time in in that kind of fantasy of being in Pride and Prejudice in a very very intense way. So with me, I know I knew Pride and Prejudice inside out and back to front. So I could quite happily play in there in that kind of free way. I know you can read it without knowing Pride and Prejudice. I know a couple of people, men, who'd read (laughs) it um, without having read Pride and Prejudice and been able to Mm -hmm. enjoy it. And and my intention was that it would stand alone or could stand alone if if it needed to, because I really wanted the working class characters to have a story of, the kind of romantic scale that the gentlefolk get to have. So it needed to be able to stand alone. So to that degree, like, I should be able to assume that a reader can come to it with no knowledge at all of Pride and Prejudice. If you do know Pride and Prejudice, the term I coined for it was a subquel. It's not a prequel or a sequel, it's a subquel. It's what's going on underneath the other novel. And yeah, so if you do know Pride and Prejudice, there's a lot there, I think, to enjoy in terms of the way that you can walk out of a scene in Longbourn into a scene in Pride and Prejudice or characters that just get an aside and a brief mention or locales that get brief mentions in, in Pride and Prejudice, we sort of go into and explore a bit more. So I think, you know, it's kind of just a big fat Easter egg for Austen lovers.
0: I mean, I'll just share my favorite, and I think it's probably the most obvious one, is that, you know, somebody is cleaning Lizzie's sexy dirty hems. Yes, right. <laughs> yes, Like it's very endearing that she doesn't care about the mud, but man, it's privilege, right? Yeah. She would walk more carefully.
1: And I think when we read Pride and Prejudice, we we are positioned to sympathize with the Bennett girls because we do. They they're in a they're in a difficult predicament. It's a rotten predicament to be in. Marry someone or be a burden. Get married or be a burden. And that is a that's a horrible predicament to be in, but then you start to unpick what other predicaments there might be around that, and ask questions around that, and and yeah, there are those those muddy petticoats, and there are those meals to be made at the last minute for Mister Collins's arrival, and um, oh, I love that all those messages to be delivered. Or <laughs> the, and, and the, actually, the line that set me off writing this novel, I had that sort of I want to be in this place, I don't quite belong in this place, sort of thought but the line that set me off on actually writing the novel itself was a line that comes in the lead up to the Meriton ball, Mm -hmm. Uh, not the Meriton ball, sorry, the Netherfield ball. Mm -hmm. You have to get your balls right. Yes. So the weather's bad. The weather's filthy in the lead up to the Netherfield ball. So the girls can't go out. There's no way they're walking to Meriton for any of the supplies. And so the line is the very shoe roses for Netherfield were got by proxy And I remember that line just kind of suddenly sort of jumping out at me off the page. I remember sort of seeing it in like it's slightly murky, smudgy, cheap paperback print and thinking, who is Proxy? And and how do they feel about going out in this weather to fetch shoe roses for a ball that I'm assuming they're a servant so they won't be going to the ball, but they still have to go out and fetch this stuff and how do they feel about that? And very soon that got attached to... Sarah, which is the one housemaid's name that we get. And that's how that right. character formed. And, uh, and the novel sort of spun out around that, around that line.
0: Yeah. I love that. You know, a, a line that we got obsessed with in this rereading of Pride and Prejudice was the flogging of a young soldier. You know, we interviewed an expert on it. We were like, how often were people flogged? Why is this like half of a sentence, you know, that a young private was flogged? And that has a pretty big storyline in Longbourn as well. Sarah witnesses that flogging. That is one of the points of Pride and Prejudice that is also in Longbourn. And then the army in general becomes a much bigger plot. I feel like this novel is an imaginative answer to the questions of what else is going on in the world that is allowing the Bennetts to exist like this. I mean, like you— a third of the novel is just a war novel. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm wondering if you could talk about how you
1: made yeah. that decision. I think it's John Mullen, is it, who says what matters in Jane Austen. It's the title of a book of his. And his answer to that question is everything. Everything. Everything in yeah. Jane Austen matters. Nothing is wasted. And so these little clues were just there in her book that she just throw right. away lines. But it's not throw away because it says something about Kitty and Lydia that they're talking about that stuff in a kind of flippant way. And it says something about totally. the culture that flogging can just happen in the local market town. And, and I suppose what I was doing there was just following that. Well, what does it mean? Well, what does it mean? Well, what does this really mean that a, that a private had been flogged and I started to think about the physicality of that and I was aware of the militia because the militia are important in Pride and Prejudice but they're important more as a source of eye candy of sexual interest of romantic interest than they are as their sort of political reality or their practical reality is considered Well, I was asking myself, what are the militia doing in Meryton? Why are the militia there? Mm -hmm. You know, just in the middle of of the countryside, it's not on the coast. But not far north of there, the Luddite riots are going down. And a bit further north still in Manchester, not long after the militia and the yeomanry, they're the people who are massacring people at the Peterloo Massacre, where all that was happening were people gathering to hear speeches about democracy. So when I hear that the militia are in Meritan for the winter and I start to unpick that and think about what that means, my blood starts to boil slightly because what we're talking <laughs> about in terms of like these fanciable men are those who are going to be wielding cutlasses at kids and women yeah. and and peaceful democratic gatherings before too long and in other places. So it became quite problematic for me. They're not, militia are not the army who are serving in, on the continent. They're a different branch of the army. So these are not guys who are going off to be heroic. These are guys who are staying home to
0: keep down the working class. So I love that. And I want to go back to talking about that in terms of Wickham and your opinions on Wickham. But you also have James and you also, you have the Napoleonic Wars. So you have this information about the, militia, but then you also have the army. Yeah.
1: And so part of that was a desire to point out that there are two different kinds of armies operating here. There's the ones who are fighting against Napoleon and what's going on in Europe and the threat to to Britain of invasion. And then there's ones that are staying home, keeping down the local unrest. Yeah, And so that was just the initial point of that. And then I actually started to think, you know, that sequence about the war comes towards sort of pretty much slap bang in the middle of the novel. And I wanted to drop a bomb in the middle of the book because, you know, up until that point, it's been Austen's world. It's been that, I think of it like a bubble. It feels contained from the sort of the wider, darker, more problematic realities that are going on around it. And I wanted to explode that bubble a bit, or at least it's sort of like explode the reader's, sense of that world. Because we do know when we're reading Austen, the Napoleonic Wars are going on, but she doesn't really go there. I don't blame her for that. Her novels are perfect. It's just, this is another thing we could talk about. And I wanted to pull in this wider context that Austen's novels exist within this sort of sense of, this is all going on around here, and we should notice it.
0: Part of that is also represented in how you talk about the Bingleys getting their wealth. So I know that there is just like dissertation upon dissertation on Austin and Mansfield Park and trying to write about the slave trade, but never really totally writing about the slave trade. But you put it bang in the middle of the novel. Do you mind talking just a little bit about that decision to have the Bingleys' money come from where it is and... Well,
1: the reality is of that time that a lot of those big houses and that great wealth was built on sugar and tobacco and and slavery. And that's a great shame on this country. I live in a small town. I'm coming to you now from a small town in the northwest of England called Lancaster. And it was a port in the 18th and 19th centuries. And it is... Its centre is a beautiful stone-built Georgian town. Beautiful, lovely, gorgeous sandstone houses. And at that time, there was a certain amount of involvement with the triangular trade from here. And it was only as the ships got bigger and our river here silted up because it was a river port, it stopped being effective as a port. So Liverpool took over as the big port in the northwest with a much deeper harbour. So in Pride and Prejudice, there's a line. Again, this is me just finding one line. And the line is, um, Bingley's father made his money in trade in the North. And Mm -hmm. that's just a line. But because of where I'm from, I kind of knew what trade in the North meant. And we made cotton here. We made um, wool here, wool then cotton. And those things were traded overseas. It became a big manufacturing area. But at this this era it's still just textiles really and the triangular trade happened from here manufactured goods out slaves across to America or um, the Caribbean sugar and tobacco back and so that's what trade in the north is and that's where that whole you know i I, I take a line at austin and I spin a couple of chapters or three, I don't know, (laughs) I can't remember, but um, it spins out from just that line, which just shows how potent her work is, that it's full of all this, this potentiality. It's all just there.
0: Okay, one of the things that I love about Longborn is that you come down on Wickham. Like you have an opinion on Wickham. Yeah. And I am going to put words in your mouth now, but you seem to think that Wickham is a decided creep mm-hmm. and just like completely villainous. Is this you spinning out of Austin in a more creative way? Or are you like, no, that's in the text? He's a creepy pedophile who kidnaps fifteen year old girls I mean
1: the legal age of of maturity age of consent was not then as it is now, so you you could argue that I was being presentist about this. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's the term that I learned that term when i when Longbourn came out. someone said, "Oh, I hope it isn't presentist, is it and I had to go and find out what presentism meant. <laughs> I feel very uncomfortable around this man in his 20s chasing girls in their early teens and that's enough to make me dislike the man or character yeah. the character and take against him and he went after Georgiana when she was what was she 40 Fourteen. Fourteen. See, that's disgusting. I am disgusted. That's disgusting. Uh, from my presentist point of view, that's just not okay. You heard it here first, everyone. <laughs> I understand that I'm being a limited human being in this, but, and, and fi- you know, the past is another country. They do do things differently there, but there are some things you could decide, well, I don't like how they do it. And so that colored my depiction of Wickham. I think, you know, he's... Whilst I paint him perhaps as a villain, I do sort of explore, I think, a little of the psychology of his state, that sort of sense of being in between, that he doesn't belong anywhere. between yes. He's not a gentleman because his father was the steward of um, Pemberley, mm-hmm. but he's not a servant because he's better than that, or he's been brought up to think himself better than that. So he is this kind of liminal creature between states, but pursuing a fortune or pursuing a 14-year-old child, no, don't like
0: it. No. You definitely give him that. He's always in the doorways between the two spaces. He gets a little speech about that feeling, and it's compelling, I just, what I so enjoy about your portrayal of Wickham is that I think it's what Austin felt about Wickham, but what that Lizzie, because she is now family with Wickham, doesn't get to actually say to him. Like, she has to let them part as friends. And so I feel like you're giving voice to what Lizzie and Austin actually think about Wickham. Thank you. I'll take that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Mrs. Hill and Mrs. Bennett have a relationship that I think is like pretty like extracted from the text, right? We hear that when Mrs. Bennett is sort of convalescing because of Lydia being missing, Mrs. Hill is like the only person who she really wants around. I mean, you must have done a ton of research just about the role of housekeepers in a household like this. I was really amazed in reading your book, The Intimacy, between Mrs. Hill and Mrs. Bennett. And I'm wondering, was that a common relationship where you were like there for all of the births and there administering the medication and in that intimate of a position as a housekeeper?
1: So I suppose like what we have here is a kind of blending of research imagination and the Austen novel. From research, it became quite clear that the relationship between servants and and employers varied across the gradations of, of wealth and class. So, from you know, from lower middle class, you'd have a girl come in to help you with the washing, through to Pemberley, where you'd have dozens of, if not well, scores of men standing around wearing white gloves and not doing much else. There's increased distance between. The working people in the household and the household itself, the family itself, the more money you have and the more status you have. So, when Mrs. Bennet is dependent on Mrs. Hill and there's a kind of um, over reliance on her, I think, in Austin's novel, I think it's saying something about Mrs. Bennet as a character and saying something about her sort of where she comes from socially, it's a, it's a little bit of social observation, because she's, she's just the attorney's daughter, isn't she? On the other hand, you, there you have two women who've matured alongside each other over two decades. So she has been there for all those births, she has been there for all those pregnancies, all you know the disappointments as well of those pregnancies when none of the Living Babies turned out to be a boy. I think Mrs. Bennet is too dependent, but I think if there wasn't an intimacy there, it would be a really difficult relationship to manage that kind of need, that sort of practical need, but to have no emotional connection with the person.
0: So you mentioned that you think of this book not as a prequel or a sequel, but a subquel. And I love that. It's been over 200 years. Why is this the book still? You know, we just finished rereading it and there's this feeling of like, because women are idiots who love romance. (laughs) But like, there isn't a kiss. There isn't a great romantic declaration, right? Like the only actual romantic declaration is so awkward and insulting and horrible. And so why why this book? Why for two hundred years? Okay,
1: I'd say there's probably a few reasons. I can maybe muster up a couple of them. Yeah. One of them, I think, sort of practically as a novelist, I think this is a perfect novel. Like insofar as a novel can be perfect, it is perfect. And novels aren't perfect. Novels are messy and complicated and they get out of hand. And this one just doesn't get out of hand. It's really, it's it's like this beautiful piece of clockwork that just ticks around beautifully. I saw someone complaining about the fact that there's a couple, you know, those letters that come in and do exposition and stuff. I don't care. I think it works beautifully. It's lean, it's precise, it there's nothing wasted. It's absolutely perfect. So that's my sort of, you know, nuts and bolts, sleeves rolled. Mechanical, technical appreciation of it, but alongside yep. that, I think you kind of put the na- hit the nail on the head there with um, there isn't a kiss. I think it's the absence of a kiss, the absence of consummation. I think if you, if particularly when you watch the adaptations, specifically, I think it's the BBC one where they do find oh, spoilers, but they do finally kiss, the, like the actual. The, see, the, the image they freeze on is finally the kiss. I don't think they needed to do that. The bit that really gets me like in the solar plexus is when they're walking together and their shoulders just start to brush each other. And that's the most that they can do. They can't hold hands. They can't snog. They can't rip each other's clothes off. There is no way any of that can happen. And I think it's that maintenance of unresolved tension whether you call that romantic or sexual or whatever I mean it's it's everything isn't it but it's the unresolvedness of that on the page or on the screen I think with the Joe Wright adaptation they might have like I think there's an extra scene where they're both in their nightgowns and I think that might have been tapped onto the American edition and I was aghast at that I don't know what (laughs) what you thought but we don't need to see that what we need is the just it is—it's it's the unresolvedness. That's what I would say. Does it? But the things that can't be said, the things that can't be articulated, the things that certainly can't be done, and that remain sort of unspeakable, undoable, un—un—unmentionable within within these pages. These you know, these pages that remain polite and and brilliant and and mischievous and sharp as sharp as as a diamond. But there are places she can't go, won't go. And so we don't. And so we're forever in this state of riled upness. We can't get past it.
0: (laughs) I just think it's so interesting, right? This thing that Austin said about Pride and Prejudice, right? That it's too light, bright, and sparkling. And I feel like Longborn, your novel, is answering that to some extent. It's like, here's some of the shade that you said you wanted. And I just love it. Before we say goodbye to you, please tell us about your new book, Midnight News. Yes.
1: I was going to pick it up and hold it, but that's not much use to you, is it, on on a podcast? I mean... Um, It's just out today um, when we're recording this. It's set in uh, just the start of the Blitz in London, 1940. It begins September 1940, when things are just about to kick off, though people don't know. They know something's coming, but they don't know what. Invasion again, I'm quite interested in war in general. So there's an invasion expected on the South Coast. Any day they're expecting the Nazis to come. And Charlotte, my central character, Charlotte Richmond is from a wealthy background, but she's living in cheap lodgings in South London. And she's trying to dodge her family who are really problematic for her. So she's getting by. And then as the blitz starts to happen, people she loves start to die. She loses people that she cares about. And she begins to detect this kind of shadowy presence following her around, and she begins to think the two things are connected. And the novel is the novel explores her trying to unpick that dynamic of um, the the threat that she's experiencing and the danger in the world that she's um, she's getting by. It is also a love story because the only person she can confide in is a new acquaintance called Tom, who is she thinks of as the boy who feeds the birds. Of course, feeding the birds is illegal at this time under war rules. And yes, they form an unlikely alliance and attempt to unpick what's what what has happened to these people that that Charlotte's lost.
0: Well I ordered it ah! today and I can't wait to read it. So Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, and also for the gift of Longborn. It really is such a gift. It's so good.
1: <laughs> My just absolute pleasure. I'll keep yelling pleasure. at you
0: about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Hot and Bother talking about Longborn. Next week, we're going to be talking to Joel Kim Booster. The writer, producer, and star of the amazing Pride and Prejudice adaptation, Fire Island. Watch it before we get to talk to Joel in two weeks. And another reminder to please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars. Compliment my voice. You love my vocal fry. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Caitlin Hoffmeister. We're edited and produced by Ariana Nettleman, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks, as always, to our Jane-level patrons. Baroness Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbston, Knight Molly Reilly of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiaralandia, Marquess Tucker Cratt of Seltzerworth, Duchess Lauren of the Tesseract, and the Right Honorable Claudia Hammerman of Penpalium. We would like to thank Roxanne Eberly and Joe Baker. I love you. You're perfect. And some more perfect people, Laura Glass, Margaret H. Wilson, AJ Yoramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Stephanie Paulsell, and you, all of our patrons. Thanks so much. Everybody, I'm dropping into your feed to let you know that starting June 23rd, you are invited to a class called Discovering Your Own Patron Saints, a guided workshop with Natalie Folkerts. In this six-session class, you will explore beloved characters from literature who have jumped off the page and made their way into the moral fabric of your life. The first week of this class you're going to explore what we mean by patron saints and then each subsequent week will be devoted to a different value wonder imagination grief encourage if you are seeking spiritual guidance outside of the constraints of formal religion if you are someone who finishes a novel and feels like you have said goodbye to new friends then this class is for you register before the first class on june 23rd by going to not that's n-o-t-s-o-r-r-y w-o-r-k-s.com